Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 526 for the 15th of January, 2017. This week, keeping track of passwords is impossible without help. That's why everybody needs a password manager. There are several good ones. We'll take a close look at the one I consider to be the very best. Even if you're not of the AARP age, the organization and Microsoft have put together some useful tips for avoiding all kinds of scams. In short circuits, Yahoo will get a new name when it's acquired by Verizon, if it's acquired by Verizon. There's one quick, simple step anybody can take that can eliminate a call to tech support. I'll explain. In spare parts, only on the website, translating websites into multiple languages is time-consuming, expensive, and difficult. A new service seems to change that. And it's likely we'll hear the terms Microsoft and Linux together more frequently in the future. Next week's program will describe some serious threats arrayed against the data on your computer, whether the computer is located in a home and has little more than tax records and photos on it, or whether it's in a corporate office and is filled with proprietary information. This week, though, kind of a precursor subject. We'll consider passwords. The threats we'll consider next week differ considerably from threats aimed at passwords, but the same kinds of people are behind both kinds of attacks. These are people you don't want to have access to your computer or your data. We repeatedly hear that it's important to use strong, unique passwords for every account, yet far too many people still use weak passwords. Two of the most common are simply the word password and 123456. And even worse, they reuse those same weak passwords for multiple accounts. Reusing passwords is dangerous for a reason that's really easy to understand. Let's say I have an account at Yahoo where I use the name TechBiter. In fact, I do have an account at Yahoo, and that's the username. Now, let's also say that my password is percent seven capital E2, lowercase h, lower m, upper j, lower y, 5, lower t. At one time, that was my Yahoo password. No more. The password is no longer in use, and it's not being used anywhere else. Yahoo has had several high-profile breaches in recent years, so I might safely assume that my password, the one that I just mentioned, may be known to some number of crooks. Had I used that same password elsewhere, one of the crooks might have tried TechBiter, or several other variants of that or my name, along with the password on bank sites. Fortunately, banks are developing more foolproof login systems, but the old saying about foolproof systems is that they only encourage more inventive fools. Not all banks, though, yet have multi-component login procedures. In general, stores are considerably less secure than banks, so if I had used the same password at a commercial site, or more than one commercial site, 
The crook who gained access to my Yahoo password could take over store accounts and have expensive stuff sent to him and billed to me. The obvious problem with unique and complex passwords is remembering which one belongs to what account. Let's say you visit just 100 password-protected sites. That may seem like a lot, but in fact most people visit considerably more than that. And also let's say you have a unique complex password for each. Let's say there are eight character unique complex passwords. Although eight characters really isn't complex enough. You really want to have them at least 15 characters these days. Take a look on the TechBiter Worldwide website, though. In this week's program, you'll see a list of 108-character, unique, difficult passwords. Could you remember all of those passwords, their associated usernames, and which sites they belong to? Well, of course not. So you might be tempted to write them down. One bit of malware on your computer would quickly deliver the file you use to store your usernames and passwords to a crook. And that is why a password manager is important. LastPass is the one I choose. You can use the free version, but a paid version for all of $12 a year adds useful features that aren't in the free version. Passwords are stored on your computer, on the LastPass site, and on any device that you've installed LastPass on. But no matter where they're stored, they are encrypted based on the password you use to create your LastPass account. That password should be very long and recommend at least 15 characters and something you can easily remember. Here's a suggestion. Let's say you had a dog named Rover when you lived in Pittsburgh. You moved there in 1972 and you lived on Agnew Road. So here's a password. Rover, Pittsburgh, 1972, Agnew. You could create a clue. Dog, city, year, street. That clue would have meaning to you, but it would essentially be meaningless to anybody else. Side note here. I have never lived in Pittsburgh. I never had a dog named Rover. This isn't my password. There are lots of other clever ways to make strong, complex, memorable passwords. Make Use Of describes seven of them. You'll find a link to the Make Use Of website on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But if you use LastPass, you don't even have to do something like that. Just let LastPass make an incredibly difficult password and use that. It will remember them just fine. And by the way, because LastPass's encryption is based on your username and password, LastPass will re-encrypt your stored passwords if you ever change the master password. And you really should do that occasionally. LastPass has been around since 2008 when it was released as a browser plugin. It's now available for all major operating systems and mobile devices. And as of last year, free LastPass accounts sync to all devices where LastPass is installed, not just one. That used to be a premium feature, but paying the $12 annual fee is still a good choice, though. If malware in the form of a keylogger finds its way onto your computer, LastPass still protects you because it doesn't type passwords. Instead, it autofills passwords. And for those times when you have to type something at login time, LastPass can display a virtual keyboard that you use by clicking it with the mouse, not using the keyboard. And that defeats keyloggers. LastPass also includes a secure note function where you can store important information that's not really password-related. 
There's also a security challenge that helps you find passwords that aren't sufficiently complex or are on sites that have been recently hacked. You'll see a picture of that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you may notice that my security rating is not 100%. That's because I continue to use some duplicate, simple, and old passwords on certain trivial sites. My definition of trivial is this. It means the site contains no information that should be private or secure, it has no access to any financial information whatsoever, and it would not be a problem if somebody gained access to the account. Needless to say, there are only a few sites that fit that description. The $1 per month paid version offers a shared family folder for up to five users, YubiKey and Sesame two-factor authentication options, priority tech support, and one gigabyte of encrypted file storage. So for LastPass, the bottom line is five cats. If you don't yet have a password manager, get LastPass and do it today. Password managers are essential. If you try to remember passwords, you're going to forget some of them, or worse yet, you're going to decide to store them in a plain text file or a spreadsheet on your computer. The $12 annual fee provides access to powerful features, but there's also a free version. Even the free version has many useful features, and the primary function, keeping your passwords safe and accessible, is available in both free and paid versions. You'll find additional details on the LastPass website, there is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Security consultant Frank Abagnale has an interesting background. When he was 15, he became a famous imposter, and by the time he was 21, he had assumed the identities of an airline pilot a physician, a U.S. Bureau of Prisons agent, and a lawyer. Eventually caught, he served less than five years in prison. Then he went to work for the federal government. He now runs Abingdale & Associates, a financial fraud and consultancy company. He also advises the AARP on how to avoid the many scams that arrive by phone, email, and sometimes even postal mail. For example, your phone rings. The caller says a dangerous virus has been detected on your computer. But, of course... He can help you. The best advice, just hang up. Abingdale says that scams are many and varied. All types of scams, uh, telephone scams, email scams, uh, IRS scams, sweepstakes scams, grandparent scams, and tech scams, things that people fall for, unfortunately, every day, cost billions of dollars, and people who lose their life savings sometimes lose their home because they fall for these scams. I've always believed that education is the most powerful tool to fighting any type of crime. So if you can help educate somebody and explain to them how the scam works, give them the resources to study and read up on it, then they're most likely not going to fall for that scam when it comes their way. The FBI says losses will total in the millions of dollars this year. In response, the AARP Fraud Watch Network has launched an education campaign to help people protect themselves. Microsoft did a survey and they found that there were more than $1.5 billion in losses in 2015 from tech scams. What was interesting to me is only 17% of the people victimized were older than 55. The people that were most likely victimized, 50% or more, were people between the ages of 18 and 34, which tells you that at any age, 
you can fall for a scam. And the way this scam works is really quite simple. You either get an email or a phone call from someone supposedly with Microsoft or a tech company, and they claim that there's malware on your computer, and they need to go in and fix it. And a lot of times we sit in front of our computer and we think it's not operating right or it's running slow, and they say, well, maybe that's correct. And they tell you that for a fee charged to your credit card, they'll go in and fix the problem. And people give them a credit card number, and that's the whole scam to get your credit card number. But sometimes they actually go in and steal your personal information, your financial records, your photos, and then they want to ransom that information back to you. So what we try to remind people is that Microsoft is not going to send you that email or make that phone call or any other legitimate tech company. That's an unsolicited call. If you feel there's a problem with your computer, that maybe you do have malware on your computer or some virus, you need to call a local reputable tech company with a good reputation and have them come out and look at your computer. You never want to give away credit card information or personal information to someone who's contacted you by email or phone in an unsolicited call or unsolicited email. And you can go to aarp.org slash techscams and Microsoft has joined with ARP and put out a great little booklet that tells you about the scam, how it works, and how not to be victimized by that scam. Abignale says it is essential to understand how the scams work. You have to be a little smarter, a little wiser. If you get a call on your caller ID and it says it's the IRS, it's the U.S. government, it's your local police department, that doesn't necessarily mean it's them. It's very easy to manipulate caller ID. So today you have to be a little more skeptical. You need to verify something before you actually give somebody money or give somebody uh, information. So you have to be a little smarter, a little wiser. ARP has a great resource called the Fraud Watch Network. I love it because it's the one and only place you can actually really go and learn about all these scams. But not only that, if you for some reason fall victim to one of these scams, you can talk to someone on the phone that will help you at the Fraud Watch Network work through it, tell you what you need to do, how to report it to the police, how to try to get your money back, etc. You don't need to be a member of the AARP to use the anti-fraud resources. See more on the AARP website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And also check out the downloadable booklet he mentioned from Microsoft's website. And yep, you'll find a link to that one, too. Yahoo's getting a new name. They spell it A-L-T-A-B-A. First question, how's that going to be pronounced? Is it Alt-Aba or Alt-Taba? Verizon is proceeding with its plans to acquire Yahoo's core Internet business, and a regulatory filing says Yahoo's name will change to A-L-T-A-B-A, however you say it. That's because changing names changes the basic operation of a company, doesn't it? Yahoo, the company that exposed millions of email addresses and other information to hackers over the years, will be nothing but a memory, and A-L-T-A-B-A, however you say it, will be clean and clear. Marissa Meyer, who tried to clean up the mess left by previous CEOs, will be out as CEO, but she does plan to stay with the company. 
So how should we pronounce the new name? Here's a clue. The Wall Street Journal says the word is a combination of alternate and Alibaba. So apparently it's pronounced Alt-Aba. Alabama Group Holding Limited is a Chinese company. It's been around since 1999 when Alabama.com was set up as a business-to-business portal. The goal was to connect Chinese manufacturers with overseas buyers. Jack Ma created the company. The company primarily operates in the People's Republic of China. In addition to being one of the world's largest Internet companies, Alibaba claims to be the world's largest retailer. Verizon agreed to acquire Yahoo for a little under $5 billion last year, and Verizon's CEO, Lowell McAdam, said the acquisition would put Verizon in a highly competitive position as a top global mobile media company and help accelerate the company's revenue stream and digital advertising. There were questions about the deal when Yahoo admitted to the two largest data breaches in history. Last year, Yahoo announced that a 2014 attack exposed 500 million accounts. And in December, Yahoo said that credentials from another 1 billion user accounts had been stolen in 2013. So the questions persist. Verizon could quash the deal or renegotiate the purchase price. You know, a significant amount of tech support time could be saved if users would take one simple step before calling tech support. Nobody expects users to be able to figure out that sector 12,557 on a hard drive has just gone bad or that memory chip 2 is about to fail. But sometimes users might find there's really no problem at all. Case in point. This week, my cable system's set-top box shut down after a weird power fluctuation. I turned it back on. Fail, it said, in bright letters on the display. Fail. I unplugged it, plugged it back in, but it still said, Fail. What would you do in a case like that? Well, I presumed I would need to have the cable company replace it, so I unplugged it so I could return it. After waiting half an hour, though, I plugged it in again. This time it said, boot, and a minute or so later it was running normally. No problem. That definitely applies to computers. One of the first troubleshooting steps you should try is a full power-off reset, not just a reboot. Some problems can survive a power-on reset. Instead, select Shut Down, give the computer a few minutes, and then reboot. You may find that the problem no longer exists and that saves the embarrassment of taking a computer in for service, having the technician boot the system, and finding there really isn't a problem. And don't stop with just the computer. If you're seeing a network problem, shut the computer down, unplug the cable modem, and unplug the router. Wait a minute or so, then plug everything back in and start up again. The jury is actually out on whether computers should be shut down every day. My primary system remains on overnight because some maintenance programs run then, but other systems are shut down. Even so, I reboot the system every week or so. If you use the sleep mode, it is important to reboot once a week or once every other week just to clear the computer's memory. 
Some applications, and yes, I'm looking at you, Firefox, do a very bad job of releasing memory the application no longer needs, and a full power-off reset takes care of that. You don't need a power-off reset for spare parts, but it is only on the website. This week, translating websites into multiple languages is time-consuming, expensive, and difficult. A new service aims to change that. And it's likely we'll hear the terms Microsoft and Linux together more frequently in the future. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.